0: All right, good morning, Grace Hill Church. Uh, Always very thankful, especially since 2020, anytime we're able to worship in person uh, and share God's word. It's always a privilege. If you're new or visiting, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff and we want to extend a a warm welcome. Uh, And as Pastor Tom mentioned, hopefully things don't get any crazier and next Sunday when we meet at the park, hopefully it's a great time to just fellowship. I know anytime you can get outdoors and be able to just converse and fellowship, it's always a, a big blessing. And so particularly if you've been checking out the church, I see some faces that have been recurring on Sundays, but it's just harder to, you know, actually get into a more meaningful conversation. So please do come out. Uh, all are invited and food will be provided as well. And before anything else, I kind of do want to acknowledge it's, we're still in the midst of a, a pretty wild time, uh, if I were to say so myself. I think uh, I personally know and I'm sure you know, people are, are getting sick or are sick Uh The Omicron variant is running wild. (laughs) And so I pray that you are staying safe and healthy. But I really want to say uh, in my heart of hearts for those of you guys that made it out. And you know, I think for someone who's grown up in the church, you take Sundays for granted. But for me, anytime, I know weeks can be crazy, mornings can be crazy. But I think for parents, if you're sitting here today and you made it to dwell in God's presence, just know I am super glad you're here. I hope it's not a wasted opportunity Uh, Just out of any given week, it's just one hour and I really pray that the Spirit would graciously allow your mind to slow down a little bit. Because we're so go, go, go all the time. And even now maybe some of you guys are tempted to think what's after this, what's next, or what do I have coming up for work. And you have plenty of time during the week. But I just encourage you in the next 45 minutes, I do think anytime God's word is opened... He speaks if we're open to hear that. And so if I can just kind of give that encouragement. Because I'm sure you're coming from all different kinds of contexts. And I don't know them, but God does. And I, I think he invites us to, to rest. Uh, that Sunday is a time of Sabbath to, to, to mentally, emotionally, spiritually take a break from all of that. So, uh, so if you're just joining us, uh, we've been going through a series, a uh, sermon series called All things new. And it's a season of newness in a lot of ways for our church, not just with the new year, but a few weeks ago on January 9th, we launched as a new church. And to recap, for either if you've forgotten or you weren't able to join us, uh, throughout this series, we've been learning first that, hey, as a new church, we want to really be intentional about following not the way of the world, which really pulls us strongly. And not even the way of religion, which I would argue pulls us even more strongly for those of us here in the OC that have been churched our whole life. But the way of Christ. And I would argue it's a lot harder than you would think it is. And so we talked about that. Hey, we really want to pursue that as a church. And then when we launched on January 9th, our guest speaker, Pastor Steve Bang, he gave a very clear charge. Hey, don't be an insular, selfish church at this Gets you know, hoards the blessings of God, but really be a blessing as well and to channel that into the city that you're in, the context that you're in. And then last week, I thought Pastor Tom did a very good job of kind of unveiling something we're going to talk about nonstop as a church, which is our mission. And I I always say this to members now, not as I like a test, but I say, hey, do you know our mission? It's memorizable. You know, it's something that took a long time for us to really simplify, which is quite simply... Grace Hill Church, we exist to raise passionate followers of Christ for all of life. And the two keywords there, if you don't know, it's passionate and all of life. And that's kind of really the two pillars that, you know, formulate the mission of our church. Now, today I have the privilege to close out the series. Again, as mentioned, we're going to start a new one next week. But today I actually hope to shed a little light behind the meaning of the church named Grace Hill. And this is my personal take on it. This isn't necessarily something where like, hey, let's come up with a unified statement. Just know all of us on staff, we all fully believe in what we are doing as a church. It's a spirit of unity that I fully, fully enjoy. It gives me a very clear conscience as one of the pastors and leaders here that we are all uniform in what we are trying to do. But we are not necessarily uh, the same. And so for me, this is how God has instilled my heart to really fall in love with grace. Hill and the meaning of it. And by now, I'm sure you've seen it on graphics, you've seen it on social media, you've heard it said multiple times. Maybe for those of you who are more tenured, it's still going to take a little bit to get used to. But I think this is the first of many times, hopefully, where we start to share kind of the meaning behind it and the purpose of it. So in order to do that, uh, pull out that physical bulletin, hopefully you got, if not, grab your, your Bible. Just know we're really moving towards being a little more Bible-bringing, physical copy church. We'll see how it goes, but for now, grab that. And there's two texts I want us to read to kick off our message. The first comes from Matthew chapter five, verse 13 to 16. We'll read from there first, and then we'll jump to Acts chapter 20, verse 24, which we'll later revisit in the message. So Matthew chapter five, verse 13 to 16. This is the reading of God's word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Turn to Acts chapter 20, just one verse, verse 24. This is the apostle Paul. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. Three simple points to help you mentally organize the message based off the name of our church. And I'm going to flip the order. First is why Hill? What, what? Where did Hill come from? What does that even mean? Secondly, why Grace? And then thirdly, briefly, what might a church named Grace Hill look and feel like? So three points. Why Hill? Why Grace? And what might a church named Grace Hill look and feel like? So. To kick it off, if you come to my house, and, and some of you guys have, uh, you'll notice next to my TV, there's a pretty cool-looking lamp. It's kind of like this golden, super-aesthetic lamp. It has these three legs. No one would know it's from Target, but it is from Target. Target has great furniture, by the way, so you should check it out. But, so it's been there since we got married. It adds a very nice tone and aesthetic to our room. It is hands down the coolest-looking lamp I have at my house. But here's the irony. It's never on. And the reason why is because when the bulb went out, I never switched it up. It's been months. <laughs> that light has been off for months. So sometimes people will come over and they'll be like, oh, it's so dark and they're like tick, tick, trying to switch it on and I have to tell them, oh, that light uh, actually doesn't work. It's just for decoration. But doesn't it look really nice? And most people you know, will be kind enough to just be, oh, yeah, that is really nice but one sensible loving friend gently asked me the super obvious question, Sam, why do you have a light that doesn't turn on? <laughs> the whole point of a light is that it's supposed to shine. And this basic but powerful idea of purpose is really the heart of what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5 regarding his disciples and by extension i would say his church now a little context Matthew 5 begins what is famously known as the sermon on the mount And I'm excited because sneak preview, we hope to actually go over the Sermon on the Mount in a few months. And I look forward to that. But verse 13 through 16 in particular, Jesus, as he masterfully does as a teacher, he uses very everyday items to give explicit examples of things that have a clear purpose that are irrefutable and how those things now illustrate who we are to be as Christians. And the first illustration he gives is, hey, you are salt. You're the salt of the earth. Now, salt is a common everyday timeless condiment used throughout history in the context they might be thinking oh salt the purpose is two main things it was a preservative back then there weren't any fridges so they would use salt primarily to prevent or at least delay the decaying of things like meat so they're thinking oh yeah salt is is a preserving thing and then more commonly seasoning right we all love salt it's a flavor enhancer salt is used to make things taste better something is bland it enhances it when you season with it And there's a lot that can be said about that verse itself. But the point is simple. Salt has a purpose. It serves a clear purpose. And if it loses saltiness, it is useless. Simple enough. And he continues in his second illustration, verse 14. He says, now you are also the light of the world. And it's reasonable to conclude by you, Jesus isn't just thinking of individuals, though he in one sense is. So when I look at you, I think you individually. But clearly he also has a corporate and communal emphasis because right after that he says you are like a city, plural. So in one sense it's you individual, but you collectively are like a city set on a hill. Now you might have heard that before if you've been in the church at any, any amount of time. But why is he saying that? A lot of commentators say it's likely that it's called a sermon on the mount because Jesus was teaching from a mount or like a hill. So imagine outside, if you go outside, of one of the Park, there's a nice little hill there where the kids left to run around and play. So imagine the disciples all sprawled out, eating there, whatever they ate back then, and Jesus is teaching this sermon. And they say from there, you could see a famous city called Safed, which was a famous city in Israel because it was high up 3,000 feet above the ground. And it was visible to all. So it's likely Jesus was saying, you know what you are as my disciples? You're like Saphon. This city that is on a hill that near or far it is plain to see and it shines brightly because it is clear. And in verse 15, Jesus goes back to the theme of purpose and says, who takes a light or a lamp and puts it under a basket? Like imagine you came over to my home, knocked on the door, you open it's pitch black and I say, welcome. First of all, that's creepy, right? Second, you might think you're, you know, it's like a murder is about to happen, and it's just pitch black, and you say, hey, hey, Sam, uh, where's the light? And I say, don't worry, all the lights are on. Some are in the closet, some have a blanket over them, and there's also one under the bed. Rest assured, though, they're all on, though. You would think, you're crazy. That makes absolutely no sense, because the purpose of the light is to shine as brightly and as expansively as possible. That's why when you place light in the home, you don't think, where is it going to be least effective? You think, how can I make this light illuminate as best as possible? Which is why you don't cover lights, you put them on stands. You ever wonder, oh, why are light on stands? Because people say, when you put it on a stand, it gives you a better shot at being bright as possible. So Jesus is building a very logical case. And you don't have to be a Christian to agree, salt has a purpose. It brings flavor and enhancement. If it ceases to do that, it's useless. Light has a purpose, it's supposed to shine forth, and if it's hidden, it's useless, which leads to, in verse 16, the reason why he's sharing these things. He says, in the same way, so I'm giving you these illustrations to make a point. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The church's purpose in its existence according to Jesus Christ, the head of the church in this text, is not ultimately to find friends friends. To check off your religious obligation that so many of us suburban, OC-raised Christians are used to doing. Or to even just have an intimate experience where, wow, I really felt God, just me and him. The church is supposed to shine like a city on a hill, like a sapphire that shines forth the glory of God as brightly and as expansively as possible. And that is the heart, that is the context, and the prayer behind hill in Grace Hill. The image and picture of a city on a hill that shines forth the beauty and the glory of God. And as Pastor Tom shared last week, we firmly believe in this day and age. That only happens not when people know God, not when people believe God, but when people are passionate about God. You know why? Because I've been at this church a long time. A lot of our members know God. A lot of our members believe in God. But we're not that bright. We're not that shiny. And I'm just saying that as I'm the first to be guilty of that. See, Jesus, he is not describing a low-key, passive community here. He isn't describing a Christian community that just says, hey, let's just really stick to ourselves. Because that's like a lamp under a bowl. He says, and it's kind of interesting because I never saw it this way. He says, let your light shine. If I could put it one way to make a point. He's essentially saying, show off. Show off your light. Let it shine. Put it on a stand. Let it shine forth and outward. And how do we do this? He says, through good works. Now let me unpack this. Because if you're like me and you grew up in kind of a, a reformed, conservative background, those two words are a dangerous combo. Because good, nobody is good but God. We are all wretched. Works is not about works, it's about faith. Good works together, oh my gosh, that's so not Christian. And, and above all of that, the idea of showing off, doesn't it seem a little strange? But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the church will shine brightly and people will see and give glory to God the Father when they see your good works. And quite frankly, he's saying you're not showing off yourselves. You're showing off the Father. Now it's important to note here, the word used here for good, it doesn't translate to Talk about the quality of a work, a.k.a. A, a good work versus a bad work, which a lot of us think. We think more and more moral terms, right? There's good stuff and there's bad stuff. The word here actually emphasizes the attractive nature of something, the beauty of something, that, wow, that is good. Now, let me give a very silly example. Right now, I have entered the great unknown and officially entered the point of no return. And I know that I'm a father because my obsession is minivans. I'm sorry for those who knew me before where I was kind of cool. It's all gone now. Because minivans, if you look at my YouTube algorithm, it's all minivans. Comparing minivans to each other. Because our lease is coming up and we're preparing for our next car. It's going to be a minivan. It's just a matter of which minivan it is. If you didn't know, our educational director, Tim Lee, his spiritual gift is minivans. (laughs) Like the brother knows his stuff. Like he has done his homework. Like when I messaged him, he was like boom, 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 boom. And when I see... Tim, talk about his Toyota Sienna 2021 XLE hybrid, all white, how much he loves it, the smile it brings on his face. I remember I was with a friend, and after he purchased the car, he could not contain it, so he started FaceTiming all his friends, surely to say, I'm in my minivan. That was the whole point. Like The guy was like, hey, why would you FaceTime me? He's like, just to show you that I got a minivan. <laughs> Like, that's how much he loves it. It oozes out. And when he talks to me about it, he's like, you know, the Sienna, it's different. It just slides back and forth. He's like, you want me to show you? I'm like, no, it's okay, man. And and his joy of being a Sienna owner, you know what it does? It makes that van look good. And by good, I'm not talking about the qualitative nature of the Sienna. He's not a car engineer where he's like, you look at the cylinder, you know, look at the electric parts and the component. He's not breaking down the qualitative nature. Quite frankly, what he's doing is he is making the car look good in the sense that he's making it look attractive, desirable, beautiful. And here's the thing. If I end up walking into a Toyota dealer and purchasing a Sienna, the glory doesn't go to Tim. The glory goes to the creator of the sienna. Now excuse the chilly, cheesy, not the chilly illustration, the cheesy illustration. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying when the church is a beacon of light that makes it a culture to do good works and to be a blessing, it makes Christianity attractive and as a result it makes Christ attractive. Now let me clarify in case you think I'm getting kooky here. This does not mean it necessarily makes the message of Christ attractive. The Bible is clear. The gospel and the message of the cross to some people will be straight up foolishness. Other people will outrightly reject it. So we don't ever water down the message of Christ. But what it does mean is even if they're not attracted to the message, it will be hard for them not to be attracted to the community of Christ. When you strive to be salt and light. Powerful illustration of this, there's a pastor at a church in Israel, Tel Aviv, Israel. And he shared how it's really hard to be a Christian in Israel, particularly Tel Aviv, because you're surrounded by Orthodox Jews. And if you don't know, Orthodox Jews, they don't really like Christians. They're fundamentally different worldviews, views, and ideologies. Well, it turns out this pastor planted a church right next to an Orthodox Jewish center. Clearly, he's starting in a position of tension and hostility. But this pastor, looking at this text, he took the call seriously. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we're called to be salt and light. So he commissioned his church members, we're going to get involved. We're going to do good to the community, for the city. So they practically participated in soup kitchens, sought out ways to tangibly love and help the poor. They engaged in supporting the needy. Not just this one-time thing, but that's just what we do as a church. And then the pastor showed how one day, months down the line, the rabbi of that Orthodox Jewish center came to him and said, you know, I want to hate you. I want to wish you were gone. But I see all the good that you're doing. I see that when a Christian church entered our community, there's so much good that is happening. So though I may not agree with your message, I cannot help but be blessed by all the good you're doing. That's what it means. To be a city on a hill as a church means that people should be blessed that we are alive and present now, if you're like me, we come, a lot of us come from Asian churches where we almost glory in the fact that we can be in a city for 20 years and nobody knows we're there. Right? We always put our heads down when the pastor asked a question on the one Sunday where we talk about mercy. Well, would, you know, if you disappeared, would your community know you're there? And everyone says, heck no, they wouldn't. Because we, we are lamp hidden under a bowl. And Jesus would say, that makes no sense. Now let me give you the positive spin of that. I think it would glorify God immensely if Buena Park High School was so grateful and blessed as a result of us gathering here. That they say, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I know Grace Hill, they made things better. It's encouraging that they're here. I think it would make Jesus a little more attractive if at Grace Hill Church, slowly but surely the community in the city knows who we are at least. And it's a positive thing they have to say. Notice, Jesus never said, and this is really important, he never says, hey, you know, I want you to become like salt or light. Make this your goal. No, 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 no. He says, as he often does, this is what you are. You are salt. You are light. And so, Christian sitting here today, Grace Hill Church, is not a matter of should I or should I not. It's you're either fulfilling that identity or you're failing at it. There's only two options. And what we're saying as Grace Hill Church is we want to fulfill it. And can I give you encouragement? Our church is doing so good at this. When we started our OEMC food bank, I had my doubts. You know, we've been doing that consistently for well over a year in the middle of a pandemic. And you know, one thing I know for sure, it might not be much, but the people who get food regularly at that food bank and some of the leaders at OEMC, they know Grace Hill Church. And things are better as a result of us being here. When we did a toy drive for Olive Crest, and then our, our brother Richard, he came up and shared, you know Olive Crest? They said, you know, Grace Hill Church, they understood the mission. They didn't just get raggedy beat-up toys. They got new toys. Things are better because Grace Hill is here. How beautiful would it be if like that, we are a city on a hill that is just shining forth. We are salty. We are enhancing. We are, we are bringing good. We are shining Now, as nice as that is, uh, that's not too novel or profound, right? The idea of being salt and light, especially for those of our church. That's like we've heard that our whole life, right? So the question isn't that we should shine. The deeper question that I want to camp on is what makes the church shine? What makes the church shine? And this is something I want to say, uh, churches are planted in specific contexts, in specific areas, at a specific time in history, to shine as brightly as you can to that point in which you are planted. So, for example, what may shine most brightly in our culture today may not have been what shines best for our parents' culture maybe 50 years ago. That's why the church is supposed to constantly put off the old wineskin, put on the new, because we are a living organic organism that is trying to adapt and to mold, not compromise, but to reach and to shine So today's context, to give an illustration of what I'm trying to get at, I don't know much about light bulbs, although I talk about them a lot. But if you didn't know, not all light bulbs are created equally. And the way you know a light bulb, how bright it's going to be, there's something called lumens. So for example, not all light bulbs shine as bright as the other. And I realized, man, if you really want to illuminate a dark area, you can't just buy any standard light bulb. You have to buy a light bulb that is the highest number of lumens. And it really does make a difference. Even though they are both light and they are both shining, when you put a 400 standard light bulb versus a 5,000 lumen light bulb, which is one of the brightest out there, that thing is impossible to ignore that. This thing is really standing out. This thing is really shining. And the reason I bring this up, Grace so Church, we do not live in an unchurched context or culture. If you are at some de-churched, Unreached people group where there's this complete utter darkness, a 400 lumen will shine. It's needed. But here in the, I know our members, I know our context. Here, so many churches have been shining at this low key 400 lumen nature for so long that nothing stands out. And personally, I believe if that's how we're going to move forward as just this typical, 400 lumen, stereotypical church, and everything we're doing with this new name, this new launch, this new mission. You know what it's like? It's like putting a fresh coat of paint on an old house. Looks a little different, but it smells the same and it feels the same. So, the question then is what type of culture and community shines brightest and speaks best to the glory of God, especially in the ailing and broken context we find ourselves in today? Leads to the first part of our name, Grace. Why Grace? If there's anyone in the Bible who understood the comprehensive nature of who God is, what he's about, what he calls his people to, I would argue outside of Jesus, it was the Apostle Paul. He penned most of the New Testament even before Christ. He was an expert of the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. After he got saved, he devoted his entire remaining life to the advance of the gospel, to the entire Mediterranean region, planting churches. And in Acts 20, what we see is we see an older, ailing Apostle Paul. And this is a fascinating study. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows nothing but persecution awaits him. And kind of summing up his life telos goal, he says in verse 24 of chapter 20, he says, the reason I do what I do is I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, which is this. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Quick side note there, if you want to calibrate your life, ask yourself, what is your telos? Telos basically means, what's your goal? What is the ultimate goal you have in life? Because it gets so noisy living in this kind of context, we're so comfortable, middle class. There's so many short, short-sighted and temporal teloses that compete for our attention. But if you really, really think about what is your ultimate telos, because this was the Apostle Paul's. And he says it is to testify to the good news of God's grace. Now, Paul could have used many words there. You understand. He could have said, I want to testify to God's justice. I want to testify to God's majesty or God's power or God's sovereignty. All good things. But of all the words he could use, he says, my life telos and mission is to be a living testimony to the glory of God's grace and here's why the gospel means good news amen the goodness of the news of the gospel is embedded in the fact that god is gracious if the gospel were just about a god who is just and who's going to condemn those who deserve it that's not good news that's news the goodness the attraction the beauty of the message of the gospel is that God is full of grace. And we forget that sometimes. For me, growing up as a pastor's kid in the church, or anyone who's growing up in the church could maybe relate. And if you haven't, don't worry, I'll get to you soon. But for a lot of us who have, I really thought, man, what made a church shine, it's righteousness. Right? Like answer that in your own head. What makes the church really shine and be distinct Fill it in on your head. Because that will show you how far you've kind of diverted. But for me, you know what it was? It was righteousness. And by righteousness, I basically mean good behavior. What makes me shine as a Christian and what makes our church shine is you avoid bad things. You do what good Christians should do. Like, like read your Bible and, and tithe and, and evangelize. And so at some point in my junior high school years, I really thought, man, the us of a good Christian is I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't party. I don't cuss. I go to Friday nights. I go to Sundays. I, I do my devos. And I know how to answer a lot of Bible questions. And that's what really makes me shiny as a Christian. And maybe you could relate. The Apostle Paul, though, doesn't say his main task in life is to testify to the news of God's righteousness, does he? And here's why. The Apostle Paul knows morality is not attractive. Morality doesn't shine in a dark world. How does he know this? He dedicated his entire life before Christ to morality and righteousness, and he attempted to obey the law to the T, and that led him to a profound sense of emptiness. The great reformer Martin Luther, dedicated his entire life to try to obey and be righteous, and that led him to a pit of brokenness. And what broke through for both of them? Grace. Shined through. And for the apostle Paul, quite literally shined through and blinded him. It was the grace of God. But here's the problem. Many of us have been modeled and taught, quite frankly, that morality is the standard of Christianity. And it oozes in our blood without us even knowing it. Let me give a small example of this. And I've been sharing this frequently because it's just been wrecking my own heart. Pastor Tom and I, we had the privilege to talk to a brother in the faith. His dad's pretty famous. His dad is John Piper. His name is Barnabas Piper, and the reason we reached out to him is because he leads the community groups at his church in Nashville. I lead the community groups at our church. We wanted to pick his brain, and so one of the things I was like, I for sure got to ask him is, hey, what do you do with those like spotty attendees? Like, those people only come, like, once every other month, and, like, you know, they affect the culture of your group, and, you know, and I was coming with a posture of, like, oh, isn't it so annoying? Like, you know, he's going to relate with me, and so I remember I got to ask him that, because naturally, don't you think it's the the regular attendees, the committed people who are doing well spiritually, and you want to surround yourself with those kinds of people, And if there's someone who shows up once every two months or always just sees, sees, sees messages and six months later just gives a thumbs up, your heart boils with rage, right, and things like that. And you naturally want to judge him. And so the culture of our church, and I think it bleeds down from us. So I repent before the Lord that we might have modeled this. You know why? Because when people would even tell me, hey, what do we do with spotty attendance? You know what I was this close to doing? I was going to say kick them out. And I felt so right in feeling that way. And when they do show up, my heart says, without saying it, where have you been? Not anything other than, wow, you must be in sin. Now let's pause and ask a simple question. Is that a culture and posture of grace? Like someone who may be having a hard time and struggling in life has made it a point to whether it's been two weeks, two months, or two years, get themselves and drag themselves into the church and community. And it's most likely true that without you adding to it, they already feel shame. They already feel judgment. Because again, most of our context is churched. People are their own worst condemner. That's the biggest struggle for a lot of OC Christians. It's not that they don't know the gospel, it's that they have a warped view of it. So, shouldn't our posture of grace be, and this is what Barnabas Piper said, and Tom and I were just really quiet because we we're muted, and we were just like, hmm, and this may have altered the trajectory of our church. I said, what do you do with those people? And he said, you know what we do at our church? We tell our leaders, even if they haven't come for two months, when they do show up, it's not a posture of where have you been. It's we're so glad you're here. We're so glad that you're with the presence of God's people. We're better to be. We're so glad you're here. And that has caused a spiral effect of me reflecting because isn't the very definition of grace rooted in the understanding that No one is better than the other. No one is better than the other. And whatever reason that our flesh conjures up to feel superior to any brother or sister next to us means you do not understand grace. And if I could give my personal opinion, I actually think the tragedy for a lot of Asian American churches, including our own, please catch this, ironically, is that one of the least safe places to be a sinner is the church. And that breaks my heart because I've contributed to that. Think about the irony in that. That the least safe place that you can be sinful is the church. Which is supposed to be a beacon of grace. It makes a lot of sense then when we relook at the life of Jesus and realize the people Jesus had the hardest time reaching was never the broken, was never the sinners or the struggling. It was all the good people. The religious people. In fact, Jesus' posture, every time he comes across someone who is struggling or weary or sinful, it is always filled with gentleness and and tenderness and compassion, obviously without compromising truth. But with those who are religious, who think, hey, Jesus, we're cool, right? I'm good. He was always super stern and said, you are so close yet so far. And he was extremely harsh with those people. Here's a quote that's been helpful for me in light of this. Pastor Ray Orland says, quote, if you are so good at Christianity that you need Jesus less than when you began, then you have completely lost your way. But if you find yourself needing him more today than when you started, your Christianity is right where it should be. If we are ungracious in our relationships and ethos and demeanor and vibe, then we are contradicting the very grace we preach and disempowering our churches in the eyes of the watching world. In other words, the product of a community that is transformed by grace is the community becomes gracious. And in this day and age, think about it. You know, back then, I think about our parents' generation. They went to church because there was nothing else. They needed a community. They needed a place to go. They needed something to do. There was nothing. A lot of them were immigrants. So they are like, I guess we'll just go to church. Even though it was a flurry of mixed motivation, they all ended up in church. It's not like that anymore. The church competes with everything the world has to offer. You can get things at a swipe of your hand. You can get things delivered to you. That's why Sunday attendance, it is going down in the droves because people just don't need church anymore. That's why I said, I'm so glad you're here. I don't take that for granted. And so you know what needs to happen? The church needs to actually start being attractive now. Not to be seeker sensitive per se. But think about this. What is the one thing the church can offer that the world cannot in this hyper-achieving and hyper-accessible age? Isn't it grace? Think about this. People can find judgment and shame outside the church all the time. They don't need to come to the church to find that. What makes the church attractive is a community marked by grace. Let me share a personal recent story to describe what a church without a culture of grace might feel like. Recently, uh, my wife, Angela, my young son, Ezra, we got to go with another family in the church, two young kids to Lake Arrowhead to see snow. We were excited. It was Ezra's first time that he was going to see snow. But I was more excited because Angela told me, hey, we booked an Airbnb. And it's not just any Airbnb. It is an Airbnb Plus. And I was like, what is that? So I went on the website, and there's this long description. And literally from the website, it says, Airbnb Plus. It is a selection of only the highest quality, I don't know why I'm talking like this, homes. With hosts known for great reviews and attention to detail, Airbnb Plus homes are where high quality meets carefully considered design, down to every last detail. With elegant design and personal, I don't know why my leg is going up too It's just something like, the homes are as welcoming. as I almost thought, like, we should just steal that caption for our church, right? Grace Hill is where, like, elegant design, right? It's just amazing. And the description goes on and on and on. So I was stoked. So a few days before, we checked the forecast, and it's like, there's going to be a snowstorm right on the days that we're supposed to go. But one, we'd already booked it and I honestly felt okay because I thought, well, we got an Airbnb plus. What's a little snow gonna do? So we get there and to be honest, it lived up to the hype. <laughs> Everything was clean, it was thoughtfully arranged. When you got in, there it wasn't just like those binders, it was like this huge iPad looking device that's like, welcome Sam and Angela. You like electronically check in. You could like scroll through all the reviews that they've made. And then the Nest, it was a modern Nest thermostat, super high-tech. And just everything about it was appealing. It was attractive. It felt super accommodating. Well, I don't know if you ever played the game Mafia. But it's like in the day, everything's chill. And then it's like nighttime. And like murder is going to happen. That's what happened for us. Like night falls. Night falls. And if you have young kids, you know, they don't sleep well in the environment, so the kids are crying, they're going crazy, the snow's coming in a lot, and I'm like, oh, even if something happens, we can't leave, because we're snowed in, right? I wish I had the minivan all-wheel drive that Tim had, but I didn't. I just had a front-wheel drive, so I can't, right? In the midst of having an already rough night, 1.30 a.m., I finally get Ezra to sleep because of this amazing invention called the white noise machine. Parents, you'll know. Kids need that to aid them. And right as I'm about to close my eyes at 2 a.m., the electricity completely goes out. And I kid you, like a Hollywood movie, I even heard the sound, ba I'm like, where did that come from, right? Like, ba Right when the white noise turns off, I hear Ezra "Ah," crying. And I think, Lord, (laughs) it is going to be a long night. And so we all go upstairs. And it was one of the roughest nights I personally had in a long, long time. And I think you know we're Asian, so we're trying to pretend to the other couple. <laughs> we're fine. You guys fine? Oh, we're fine. Later, when we got down the mountain, we we're like that was so miserable. If you guys said you want to stay, we'd have been so mad. So, long story short, here's what happened. It was freezing cold. There's no heater. It was super dark. There's no lights. It's snowing outside. The kids are crying. We're all dead tired. So, here's what happened. We left the day early, because what good is an Airbnb Plus if it can't provide the basic necessities of warmth and light? Thankfully, we got refunded, right? I share all of that to give a very vivid imagery because a church that lacks grace is like an Airbnb plus without the basic necessities. The glitz and the glam might attract people at first to church, but it's the warmth and light of grace that keeps them there. And I find too often, unfortunately, people get attracted and they leave. Because there's nothing to keep them there. You know, one thing, Pastor Tom, we've been talking a lot about is how people are going through some tough, tough things. It used to be every month or so, we'd get a text in our pastoral chat about how one of our members is going through a tough time. Now, I hate to say it, it's like two to three times a week. And I wish that was an exaggeration. And some of you members know on our lunch day, you know, in the spirit of like, oh, exciting, Grace Hill, new launch. There was some heavy stuff shared in our members meeting. And I think that's only going to be the case. And I told Tom, like, I think it's God's providence and sovereignty that a lot of the, the real struggles of life have seemingly peaked at right in the season of our church launch. And I think that's helpful because God has shown us firsthand as a church, this world is a cold and dark place. You can try to isolate yourself and insulate yourself from it for only so long. I'm sure many of you right now, if you had the space and the safety to share what's really going on, whether it's external things like career or finance, relational things like how your marriage is really going, or your family tensions, or your relational conflicts, or internal things, the hidden things of your heart like mental health struggles, loneliness, depression, unexplained apathy, or unexpected things like loss of loved ones. If you had the space and the safety, I'm pretty sure you would share and you'd break down. You know why? Because life is brutal. And if you're not a Christian in here today, I'm sure you agree. That's not, it doesn't discriminate towards Christians only. Life is brutal. And here's where Jesus makes it clear. We sing it today, the way, the truth, and the life. You know when you hear people's testimonies? Isn't it most often when people hit rock bottom? that the gospel of grace suddenly shines so brightly. You know why? Because when you hit rock bottom and the world fails you, and it's going to fail you, that's when you realize Jesus has been extending his gracious hand all the time to say, I really am the only way, the truth, and the life. And I hope you understand, if you're not a Christian, Christ, he's not an intellectual ascent or some sort of religious activity. He is a personal savior. And he says the truth will not bind you to therefore now have to do Christian things. He says no. The truth will set you free. It liberates you. And what a weary, wounded, struggling, doubting, guilt-ridden, shame-experiencing person needs more than anything. The grace of God regularly experienced and dispensed through his people, the church. And for our church, I can't help but feel like God wants us to hit the ground running and being that kind of church I know for me personally, it's it's been a season of reflection as a pastor. I mean, I've been in ministry a good amount of time. I'm a pastor's kid, and I think somewhere along the line, I forgot that the church is meant to be a hospital. I forgot that a hospital for sinners, not a sanctuary and a hangout and a country club for saints who have it all together. A lot of people have not gone to hospital recently. Imagine, imagine if you were a sick person, you show up at the hospital. And you feel shamed and judged for being sick. How does that make any sense? What kind of hospital expects only people who are healthy to come? That's why Jesus says, the problem is when people who aren't sick come to me. What good am I to you if you're healthy? I'm a physician. I'm a doctor. So for me, if we are a church for years and years to come where everyone is fine... Everyone has it all together. Jesus is like, you don't even need me. But like I said, if you take just 10 seconds to even reflect, that's not what's really going on under the surface. And I think this is why Jesus gets so angry at religious people. Because under the guise of being disciples, religious people, they don't make people feel comforted or to minister to. Religious people make sinful people just condemned. They just make them feel judged. And you know who the number one suspect of that is at our church? It's me. So I'm repenting before the Lord of that right now because our church will only go as far as us. So pray for us that we can be that kind of gracious leadership to hopefully instill that kind of gracious culture that can actually shine in a genuine way and not some sort of fabricated way. Because I am convinced if we want to be a 5,000 lumen shining church in this culture and context, the type of city on a hill we have to be is a gracious one. Hence the name Grace Hill. Now really briefly... So what might a church named Grace Hill look and feel like and we'll be done. This is something we hope to unpack for years to come obviously. But if I can kind of scratch the tip of the iceberg with just some thoughts and applications. The first thing I want to point out, a church named Grace Hill should not highlight service as the main expression of spiritual passion. And... We have so many people that are suffering from PTSD because they come from a context where your service to God is equivalent to your relationship with God. I am exhibit A of this. I used to play drums on praise team for many, many years. My church and my community gauged my spiritual health based on whether or not I showed up to play drums. So I was in one of the darkest spiritual moments of life. But so long as I was there playing the drums, they thought, oh, Sam's doing well. The one Sunday I don't show up to play drums, I get all these calls and texts, hey, everything okay, man? I noticed you didn't play drums. You know what that tells someone like me? Oh, service is the way to spirituality. So I got to serve. And that's why as pastors, it breaks my heart because some people in our church, when they stop serving, they, they literally like feel like I, I don't know what to do with myself. I feel I'm supposed to be serving. Or people who are serving who shouldn't be and who should just rest in the gospel of grace are saying, But I have to do this to be a good Christian. I got to keep serving. So there's grinding, grinding away, and just growing so bitter and growing so angry. You can be serving in six different ministries and be seen and perceived that this godly person on the outside, yet be spiritually rotting on the inside. And Jesus says, "You know what that's like? You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're a coffin that's painted nicely on the outside, and you only care about the outside of the cup. When it's the inside of the cup that I care about as the Savior. You need to fill your cup with grace." But on the flip side, you can be a faithful believer who just, you're part of the community. You don't have a title, but you're so filled with the spirit and of God's grace that you are saltier and brighter than any religious serving person will ever be. Now, please, if you're serving, don't just quit. <laughs> I said this during a volunteer service, and Pastor uh, uh, Director Tim's like, hey, 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 like, you know, there's wrong applications of this too, right? So I'm not just saying drop everything, but some but for some of you, I do think if serving somehow gives you a superior spiritual sense that you're better or more acceptable because of it, or you find yourself growing bitter, I, I genuinely encourage you, like, take a break. The Sabbath is for you to come rest in the Lord, not to work, 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 work like you do the rest of the week. We serve out of an overflow of grace, not out of a deficit of of approval or a reputation. So That's where I really hope our church can strive towards being that kind of community where serving or not, title or not, we all contribute to a culture of warmth and intentionality. The second thing, and we'll be done, I want to point out that being this type of grace-filled church is impossibly hard. It is especially hard for for a lot of us who are from Asian American backgrounds because you know what we crave is clarity. We want rules. We want instruction. That's why we gravitate towards things like obedience that's why when you take notes of application you love when here's one two three things you got to do you like to gauge am i succeeding and doing it well and that in itself is problematic and here's why in some sense obedience is practical why we have a hard time with grace is grace is not practical you can obey rules you don't obey grace you embody it obedience and service is action-oriented Grace is character-oriented. Rules instruct and guide you, but grace first and foremost has to captivate and melt you. Rules cause you to act a certain way, but the transformative grace of God makes you to be a certain way. That's why the beauty of grace is not necessarily observed, it is felt And it is experience. And that's why sometimes newcomers will come and they say, everything seems nice, but something feels off. And you know what I used to say as a pastor? Stop complaining. Just go somewhere else then. But now it makes me look inward and say, what is it that so many people are telling us there's something palpable that they can't explain that feels cold and dark? It's probably the lack of grace working in our church. So that's why our church, we're going through means of grace. Let's go through the Psalms together. Let's prioritize worship. Let's pray, not because we have to, but because we need it. We lack the grace and the strength otherwise. And I really hope that's the kind of church we can be. And if you are curious, where do I start with this? I find it interesting that he says, Let your light shine in all the house. This might not apply to everyone, but it does to me, particularly as a father and as a husband. The way that you know you're not pursuing this is if there's a stark discrepancy between how you are in the church and how you are in the home. He says, Let your light shine in the home, in your marriage as a parent, in your family, that's how you know you're really trying to walk the walk and you're not just putting on this one-day-a-week facade. And so if I can invite the praise team up right now and lead us just in a moment of, of reflection and prayer. I think one thing we don't really gauge ourselves with is this question, how gracious am I? How gracious have I been so far? Either in my marriage, as a parent, in my relationships, the way that I speak about others, And maybe it's not prayer you need, but I ask, take a moment to go deeper to the inside of the cup and ask, not what have I been doing, but how have I been? Can you pray that God will remind you of and fill you with his grace so that you can be the salt and light that you already are in whatever context you find yourselves in? And for particular members, can we plead with God to help us to be that type of church City on a hill transformed by grace. Not just by name but by spirit and truth. That we can really shine and be a blessing to all. So let's take some time to pray together and then I'll close for us.